you have a copy of God's Word there available to you, I invite you to join me in John's Gospel, fourth chapter, Gospel of John, chapter 4. Begin reading at verse 1 and read all the way through verse 26. Gospel of John, fourth chapter, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city for food. The Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oh my goodness, the understatement of that sentence. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, 
he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, cause this word to bear fruit among your people. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's the condition of your heart this morning? You have a small heart and a large one. I know you say, well, of course I'm large-hearted. love my family, love my children, I love my friends. And I will follow up by saying to you, well done. You've accomplished as much love as your non-Christian neighbor. Bravo. What about a love for those whom you don't know? A love for those who are different from you. Jason, when he prayed this morning, mentioned Senegal. We had a meeting this week about trying to take up again our mission work to Senegal. I heard a statistic that floored me. I'm not sure why, but it just caught me. There are fewer Christians in Senegal than there are in Iran. Less than 2% of the entirety of Senegal claims any association with Christianity. In the capital city where there are 9 million people, there are four Baptist churches. 9 million people. Four Baptist churches. A handful of believers in villages there from the ministry of the Way and South Haven and to some extent Boulevard. But none of them yet established as churches. How large is your heart? A sentence from the diary of James Gilmore, a pioneer missionary in Mongolia, written late in his life, must have been written in blood. This was toward the end of his time there. In the shape of converts, I've seen no results. I have not, as far as I am aware, seen anyone who even wanted to be a Christian. Painful words. Contrast those with these words he wrote when he first arrived. Several huts in sight. When shall I be able to speak to the people? O oh Lord, suggest by the Spirit how I should come among them and guide me in gaining the language and in preparing myself to teach the life and love of Christ Jesus. Do you understand that Gilmore would not have had either this large-hearted hope or his apparently staggering disappointment were it not for the fact that he chose to follow Jesus Christ. How's your love, not just for others, but how's your love for the Lord, for His kingdom? While the text is primarily about Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman and eventually with many from the village of Sychar, it's also about a great transition 
regarding the matter of worship. But before we begin to talk exclusively about worship, and this is the beginning of a series of about five messages for the next few Sundays on the matter of worship. But before we dig into verses 23 and 24, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We're going to dive into that. But before that dive, let's look at where this comes in. What is it that's going on? Jesus is not delivering a lecture in a classroom or even a sermon in a synagogue about the nature of worship. He's on mission. He has something to do. I love this text. It's one of my favorites in all of the Gospels. One of my earliest sermons preached when I was around 17. Maybe I should rephrase that. Attempted to be preached when I was around 17. Was from this text. Think about this. The imagery of water continues. Now I love I love that because you can go back to Nicodemus, the whole born of water, born of the Spirit text. And one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is the gracious condescension of Jesus and the absolute density intellectually of the people to whom he speaks. Right? Chapter 2, son, they've run out of wine. Yes. What is that to us? And then Mary's resignation. You ever ponder how much Mary had to adjust over the years? Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> I, I love that. Do whatever he tells you. And there's water, right? Fills up those jars. And, uh, those jars, by the way, probably held 120 gallons. You, you talk about a lot of wine. Hmm. And then you get to the third chapter, and Nicodemus coming by night, trying to be complimentary, trying, in his mind, he's condescending himself because he's a great teacher in Israel, and he's coming to this, uh, this nomadic rabbi. Well, teacher, we know you're from God, and he's waiting for something like that to be said back to him, and what does he get instead? Well, as a man's born from above, he can't even see the kingdom. What are you talking about? You're a master in Israel, and you don't get this? Unless the Spirit of God births somebody? You don't see it. You don't understand it. Now we get to the woman at the well, and we're back to water questions hmm. friends you know sometimes i think we are far too easily discouraged and we give up too easily in the matter of witnessing never forget this sinners think they know what they need they don't know what they need but they think they know what they need right and what you see in this text is what thirsty sinners need is the living water and really from that living water makes living worshipers but this is the beginning point. 
Consider first with me, Jesus was driven by his kingdom mission. Now we're told in the first verse that all of this comes up because the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing, making and baptizing more disciples than John. And I love this because you've got a little distinction there. Uh, John feels compelled to say Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Sounds a little bit like Paul in 1 Corinthians when he said, I thank God I didn't baptize any more of you people than this one and this one and maybe that one, but I don't remember anybody else because they were so divided. Can you imagine how arrogant some folks might have been and said, I was actually baptized by Jesus himself. You just had one of those apostles do it. Mm. And we're told that he departs Judea for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, for Jewish travelers heading north from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. The only alternative was to cross the Jordan near Jericho, travel north up the east bank, largely Gentile territory, and then cross the west bank near the Sea of Galilee. Now, some would do that. But mostly they just endured going through Samaria. And here we have this glorious contrast between Nicodemus, a man, a Jew, a leader, a religious expert, and a Samaritan woman. She doesn't even get a name. What's going on? A plot of ground had been given by Jacob to his son Joseph on the shoulder of Mount Ebal. It was opposite of Mount Gerizim. You read in Genesis 48, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Genesis 48. So here is Jesus talking to this woman. He's tired. Don't lose sight of that. He has to go through Samaria. And this is where I kind of prefer the King James, the way it says it. He must needs go through Samaria. I think that's double-edged. I think it's, well, that's the quickest route to get to Samaria, but Jesus had something to do. But Jesus remembers his mission. The disciples have gone into town, hit the local deli, I don't know, a few sandwiches, maybe a ginger ale, kosher, of course. And yet, Jesus, thirsty, no way to draw, strikes up a conversation. Now, Jesus, keep in mind, always driven by his kingdom mission. This is always on his mind. He knows why he's here. He knows what he is to do. Okay? Second thing. This is the larger part. Driven by his mission, Jesus was also dedicated to saving sinners to the kingdom. First of all, he's not put off by social convention. Now, the woman comes at an odd time. Sixth hour equates to noon. Women typically... When they went to get water from a well, 
or another water source from a village or an encampment, they would all go at the same time and they would either go early in the morning or late in the evening because it's hot. It's uncomfortable and you need water for what you're doing that day, whether it's for washing or for cooking or just drinking water. And so they'd come early in the morning or they'd come late in the evening. This lady doesn't come with women. She comes by herself and she shows up at noon. Hmm. One wonders. You read more of the story, maybe you don't have to wonder anymore. Maybe she was something of a pariah. Further, Jesus isn't put off because of her reaction. He asks for a drink. Verse 7, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives this commentary, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's this long-term animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Jews were not allowed uh, to share eating utensils with Samaritans, particularly glasses or cups, because Samaritans were considered to be unclean. This goes way back in biblical history. But when the Assyrians came and took the Israelites, the northern kingdom, into captivity, they deported most of the upper-class Jews, moved them to other nations. And those nations intermarried with the remaining Jewish population, and it led to idolatry. The outcome was a people, when the Jews come back to Judea, they considered them traitors and of mixed race. In fact, within a few decades, rabbis will actually codify a rule that a Samaritan woman is simply unclean from birth. Period. Now she may be implying, what is it you really want? And why should I give you anything? She dismisses him as a Jew. It's been intriguing that later on some of the Jews will dismiss Jesus as a Samaritan who has a demon. Hmm. And she asks a question. Are you greater than Jacob? Now, see, there's not only this suspicion on her part, there's this spiritual ignorance She, she's hearing him, but she's not understanding. Can I let you in on a little secret, folks? Non-Christians don't always understand what you're talking about. They have no spiritual life. They really don't get it. So when they object, and some of their objections seem like to you either highly emotional or prejudiced or ignorant... Why are you surprised? They don't understand. She didn't understand. Now they believed there was a prophet who was to come. The Samaritans only used the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophetic material on rivers and streams wouldn't be part of their understanding. In fact, all they had was that by the time of this event, when it came to Day of Atonement, one of their teachings was this. When the Messiah comes, water will flow from his buckets. That was the extent of what they had. 
in terms of the idea of water. Now always keep in mind, my friend, sinners aren't seeking God. God is seeking sinners. Jesus talks water, she defaults plumbing. Or first magic water, give this water so I don't ever thirst anymore. How do I make this work out? She is truly confused. Aquinas put it this way. Remember, sinners aren't seeking God. They're seeking the things only God can give them. Freedom from guilt, peace, and purpose. But they seek the things while at the same time running from the one who gives them. And isn't that always the danger of idolatry? We want what God alone can give us, but we want it on our terms. We want to divorce it from the one true God. Hmm. Now she's not only misunderstanding and ignorant, further, he gets personal and she didn't like it. Now, he gets personal in what appears to be just an easy little statement. Well, you've got questions. Maybe it would be better to sit down with you and your husband. So go get your husband and bring him. And her answer is so clipped. After being, having had so much to say, the answer is, I don't have a husband. Sometimes you know by the way somebody answers a question for you that you've stepped on something that they didn't want you to step on. Now, Jesus doesn't back away from this. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now, you, you read that, you hear it, and you think, well, I'm kind of surprised she didn't just run away. Or yell at him and go on. Now, now keep in mind, Jesus doesn't stop and explicate and exhort over her sin. He doesn't hide from it. He is willing to name it, but he doesn't rub her face in it. Sometimes I think in our zeal to lead people to repentance, we think we've got to be sure we hammer them hard enough about how bad they are. A little sensitivity to the work of the Spirit of God, my friends. I perceive <laughs> you're a prophet. So who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? Are you a prophet? Or literally it could be translated, you are the prophet. They were expecting a prophet. And of course, then the next transition so who's right about this whole worship thing? Let's, let's talk worship wars. That used to be the phraseology some years ago, a couple of decades in America, the worship wars. Traditional worship versus contemporary worship. And the whole thing was just a mess. But it's also nothing new. Worship wars go back all the way to a well, Jacob's well, near Sychar in Samaria. Now, it could be that since she thought she had found a prophet, 
that she actually had a legitimate question. That's part of it. But I think the other part of it, and I think this is important too, is, well, since we're talking about my moral failures, how about a theological question? When you feel like you're under the spotlight, maybe it's time to turn the spotlight somewhere else. Let's have an argument about worship. Well, what do you read? First, verse 11, verse 12, excuse me, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. Jesus counters with everybody who drinks here will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again. Give me this water. Then we have the thing about call your husband. And then she transitions at verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Let's stop for just a moment. What is it that happens here? Now, first of all, Jesus affirms that the Israelites, the Jews, were the chosen people of God throughout Old Testament history. Secondly, he affirms that that people had had the Word of God granted them. It had been revealed to them the way that God expected to be approached. And what the Samaritans were doing, even though they felt good about it, may have had some spiritual motivation. It wasn't anchored in truth. There's a part of me that wonders when Jesus gets down to the matter of worship and talks about it being both in spirit and in truth, he is in a sense rejecting what had become the heartless worship of Israel and also rejecting the less than truth-oriented worship of the Samaritans. The Jews had revelation from God this is how you worship. But they'd also turn the temple into a marketplace. The Samaritans had another place to worship, and they may have been sincere, but what they didn't have was the truth. But look at this for just a moment. What is it that Jesus says in these two verses about worship. And we're going to dig into this next week. The hour is coming and is now here. Okay? That already? Not yet. Hour is coming, now here. When the true worshipers will worship, and notice he changes the language. Not from worship, not to say worship God, but to worship God. The Father, there's a relational element. How? In spirit and truth. Further motivation? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Wow! Now, we don't have time this morning, lest I do next Sunday's sermon. But there's a lot to unpack there. We'll worship the Father. 
But it ain't going to be Jerusalem. It's sure not going to be this mountain. It is a matter of spirit and in truth. And the Father, Father, seeks such people to worship Him. Oh, okay, the Father. What? God is spirit. Okay, I got that one. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. And you can speak of God as spirit and yet speak of God as Father and speak accurately in both ways. My friends, what he does here, maybe a little glimpse, Jesus is applying, he is fulfilling what new covenant worship is to be. Never forget, when Jesus comes, it is to usher in, to bring about, the new covenant. Not to somehow bring about the old. He fulfills the old to bring in the new. And the terms and conditions of the new covenant are different. What is it that was one of the primary elements of the new covenant that is prophesied? No longer will they say to one another, Know the Lord... For they all, everybody under the terms of the new covenant, they all will know me. From the least, Samaritan woman, to the greatest, a Nicodemus. For I will write my law in their hearts and their minds. Now, why am I getting excited about this? Because what you find here is Jesus saving to make worshipers. Now many of you are already familiar with John Piper, but he made a phrase some years ago that is stuck, and I think it's an excellent phrase. Missions exists because worship doesn't the new covenant makes worshipers the gospel brings worshipers it creates worshipers and that's what jesus is doing here now he does it in the midst of an interruption have you pondered that for a moment He's just going to sit by the well. The disciples are going to go into town, hit the drive-thru, or I guess in this day the walk-thru, I'm not sure, and get something to eat and come back, and he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he's hungry, and here this woman shows up, and Jesus sees an appointment. My friend, let me ask you a question. Have you learned that sometimes the interruptions in your life are appointments? Listen, what I plan to do today, Appointment. Why is this person here? Appointment. I'm not saying the purpose of the appointment every time is evangelism. It can be. Sometimes it may just be to <laughs> work on you a little bit. Hmm. Stuart Briscoe, excellent Bible teacher, years ago told the story of being in Britain. He was at a Bible school with his wife. And, and he was going to be gone for the day 
So he'd left her the car because she had to go speak at another conference. But he had inadvertently taken the keys with him. So she finally tracked down and borrowed a car. So she's rolling down the road, she's running late, and she sees some girls hitchhiking. And she stops and picks them up. Turned out the three girls were from Germany and they were visiting England. And she persuaded them to come with her to the conference which was for German Christian young people. Now listen to the rest of the story as Stuart tells it about one of the girls. She was a theological student in Germany. She'd come under the influence of some teaching that instead of leading her to an intelligent worship of God had filled her with doubt and confusion. She had finally delivered an ultimatum to God whose existence she doubted. She told God that if he was there, he should show himself to her in some way. She gave him three months. How generous. If he didn't, she told him, I'm going to quit schooling, I'm going to quit theology, I'm going to quit religion, and I think I'm going to quit living because there's nothing to live for. And after explaining this, she turned to Stuart's wife with great emotion and said, the three months end today. Why? God, draw the why. Why is this the launching point for a series on worship? Because, my friend, until you're alive, you don't worship. Or you may show up, you may go through the motions. You may do all the same things that everybody else in the room does. Okay? You listen to the call of worship. You sing. You do the response of reading. You'll bow your head when there's prayers. You'll politely sit and listen to the sermon. And you'll sing again here in a little bit. And you'll listen as words are prayed. And you'll walk out the door and you're dead. You're a spiritual corpse. Worship is only done by those who actually know the one whom they worship. It is only through faith in this Jesus. I didn't read the rest of the text, but what a wonderful story. Disciples get back, and the woman leaves, and the disciples are looking at each other, but nobody's going to say anything. Well, I'm not asking him. You ask him. Let's just have lunch. Master, eat. I have food you don't know about. And the disciples, what? Who brought him food while we were gone? No. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now while that's going on, the woman's gone into town. <laughs> and she said, I met a man. And you know what they're saying. We bet. Sure, you met a man. No, no, no. I met a man. He told me everything. I've... You got to come see this guy. 
And something persuaded them. And they come out, and they're coming out as Jesus is finishing saying to the disciples, you say so many months harvest? Look. And I think he points, I, I know I'm making this up, but it seems reasonable. I think he points down the road to this crowd of Samaritans coming to him and saying, the fields are white for harvest. Pray the Lord, send out more harvesters. You remember the people, what they say later? You know, we believe because of what you said, because something's really weird going on here. But now we believe not because of what you said, but because we heard him ourselves. Hmm. Friend, if, you, if you're not worshiping, you're not intrigued by worship, there's nothing in your heart that says, oh, I long to do this. It could very well be because you simply don't know Christ. I'm not upset with you. I can't be upset with you for being blind and deaf and spiritually dead. But I will say this to you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Him. Believe in Him. As Rob said earlier, run to the cross. Find life in Him. And oh Christian, I hope in some sense that your heart thrilled at the thought of worship today. I hope in some sense, maybe, maybe you're battling, maybe it's been a rough week, maybe it's been a rough month, maybe it's been a rough year, or maybe it's just been a rough life. He's worthy of your worship. Worship may not change a single solitary thing in what you're dealing with right now. But I will affirm this to you. Worship will do your soul good in the midst of what's going on. And even if you don't see it, worship honors Him and it encourages those around you. Let's worship as folks who know the reality and joy of this new covenant. Our Father.